0: Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in Genocide Studies. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Wendy Lauer. Lauer is the author of the widely praised Hitler's Furies, German Women in the Nazi Killing Fields, published by Houghton Miller. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Every month or so, I interview an author of a new or recent book in genocide studies. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Wendy Lauer. Lauer is the author of the widely praised Hitler's Furies German Women in the Nazi Killing Fields, published by Houghton Mifflin. The book was a finalist for the National Book Award and has received a variety of other recognitions. In the work, Lauer looks at the ways in which young German women participated, actively or passively, in the crimes committed in occupied Eastern Europe. The book is a combination of rich anecdotes and thoughtful analysis, and it reads remarkably well. It's a wonderful <laughs> book, and I'm thrilled to have the chance to talk with Wendy about it. So with that, Wendy, welcome, and thanks for being with us on New Books and Genocide Studies.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So I'd like to start just by giving you a chance, Wendy, to say a little bit about who you are and how you ended up becoming a historian.
1: Uh, well, I'm currently, um, at Claremont-McKenna College. I'm the John Roth Professor of History, and I run the, uh, Direct the Human Rights Center there. Um, and, uh, you yeah, know, many years prior to the, that, led to that, uh, where I, where I've landed, um, kind of circuitously from Washington, D.C. I was at the Holocaust Museum for several years, and then in Munich at the Ludwig Maximilians University, um, and now I'm in, um, Claremont, California. Um, as a graduate student, when uh, I, I, mean, I studied history as an undergraduate, I double majored in history and German, um, but I didn't think with a liberal arts education that I was necessarily going to go right to kind of post-graduate work in history. I worked um, in the private sector for a while and kind of, you know, just explored various professions, um, and then I decided that I would go back to graduate school in history because it was something I really enjoyed. Um, and then I thought, I wasn't sure if I could make a kind of career of it, but I we had one of those moments of, um, you know, decision-making and life choices and so forth. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go to history graduate school. Um, and that was an important, the timing of that decision was really significant because it occurred when the Soviet Union collapsed. So I went and I was filling out my applications and watching these events unfold on media and didn't realize how much that was going to impact my research and my, my uh, direction in Holocaust and genocide studies. So
0: let me ask about that. So, so you had the opportunity. I know I, my, my students often ask me how I can possibly spend my life studying something that's this depressing. Did did you wrestle with that as a graduate student?
1: I didn't really think about, you know, the decision, the decision behind, you know, going to the archives and looking at this in more depth was not so much done with, you know, that kind of self-reflection, like, well, how is this going mm-hmm. to emotionally impact me? I approached it <clears throat> kind of more scientifically and more, you know, with basic questions of, of course, they were infused and, and kind of motivated by a, a, a sort of outrage that I think is is part of all of our sentiments when we approach this history. You know, how could this happen? Who are these people? You know, who, what, how did the victims experience this? And where did it happen? These kind of basic questions of who, what, where, when. And, and the big why, um, and because the Holocaust, um, in particular, the, the documentation on that genocide is so rich, and so voluminous. I, you know, it's 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 hard not to keep digging into those archives and and exploring those questions and moving to different topics. Um, so the collapse of the Soviet Union, which I mentioned before, was so significant because suddenly these materials had opened up that hadn't been um, accessible until the mm-hmm. 90s. Um, so, as a graduate student, you're looking for a, a dissertation topic. I was interested in German history. And there was Ukraine, a country that really had been, uh, suffered the most um, um, next to Poland in terms of the Stalinist Nazi um, uh, chapters of the 20th century, those those horrors, that, in particular in Ukraine, the genocide, the famine, um, and then the Nazi occupation, the Holocaust. And I thought, okay, here's an area that is really under-researched, um, and yet so much in this history transpired mm-hmm. there. I want to go and see and poke, you know, go to the archives and talk to people. And that started in the summer of 92.
0: So how did you come from that point to, to write about a book about German women in, in this region?
1: Well, I didn't go there initially with the question in mind. You know, wh- what is the story of ordinary German sure. women? I mean, that was not in my in the forefront of my mind at all. At that point in the early 90s, the big question in Holocaust history historiography was the decision making behind the Final Solution, and specifically mm-hmm. when was that decision taken? So there was a lot of focus on the uh, leadership in Berlin and kind of tracking their um, you know, following their itineraries and and also their interaction with regional leaders, and how the escalation of the policy and the radicalization that led to the violence and the mass killing in the summer of thousand nine hundred and forty one you know where, where the origins of that, where could we place the origins so when I went to Ukraine, I thought, well maybe you know it 's naive, I thought, well, maybe I can find you know this this smoking gun in the document because i I chose a town where Himmler had his headquarters, and Hitler was nearby in Shitomer mm-hmm. and Vinitsa, and I thought maybe since they're captured their records german records there maybe something significant you know ended up in some lower level file um and and would kind of um provide that missing link and 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 help us understand the decision-making process Um so my dissertation which was on the nazi called nazi empire building the holocaust in ukraine mm-hmm. really focuses on the kind of center periphery dynamic but while i was going through those local records um, and many of them were kind of very uh, basic and uh, personnel lists and kind of day-to-day types of you know, supply lists, things like that. There was this list of um, uh, German female personnel, young single women who were from the Nazi party organizations or secretaries or nurses from all walks of life are all professions and um, they were housed in a separate dorm uh, in the town of Chatomar because of the racial policies. They were trying to prevent kind of racial mixing as it were. And so this suddenly gave me a kind of demographic snapshot for a locality that, you know, where German women, ordinary German women found themselves. And I was just shocked to find them there. I thought, I thought hmm. well, this is odd. They, I thought they were back in the Reich and, you know, holding down the home front. Um, and you know i'm su- was just surprised that they were allowed to kind of be based and circulating and socializing and and doing these kinds of um uh traditional female types of professional uh you know even spouses and girlfriends were there and so that that first that was the first indication i had that okay they're here but i didn't know how many and what they were doing i mean i didn't know the full history so i just started to collect information and it took years of uh, piecing together those those stories and, and those personnel lists to finally come up with the book Hitler's Furies.
0: So my sense is that this book was written. Well, let me ask because my sense is that this book is intended for a popular for a, a broader audience than men, many academic publications. Is that right? And if so, at what point in the process did, did <laughs> you conceive of it that way?
1: Well, I ended up using um women's history is very challenging to write. Hmm. they're not showing up um because their role in the genocide crosses you know into kind of informal and formal um capacities you know either as secretaries or nurses but mm-hmm. also as wives and spouses and even you know one of my characters is a kind of showgirl you know part of an entertainment group um so the, the the path that these women t- took to the East, ultimately, and about a half a million, I estimate, it's a pretty pretty conservative estimate, actually, so more research needs to be done on that, but um, a significant number who, who made their way East did so through many, many routes, and that can only be kind of pieced together through a lot of different sources, including a lot of memoir literature and interviews that I conducted with women here in Germany. Um, so... That material really lent itself to the kind of rich, more, um, you know, storytelling, because they're remembering their experiences and describing them in ways, you know, if, if I'm talking to a witness, a German nurse, I'm thinking of one of the characters, Erica, or, and she's describing what it was like to move in the train from Germany, never been outside her village, from Germany mm-hmm. through Belarus, through these partisan infested territories, and seeing, you know, the victims of um, the warfare, the civilians dangling from balconies in town. The way she describes this and, and, and relates it is um, so filled with the kind of imagery that really, as an historian, you, you just you know, suddenly realize I can tell these stories in a way that's much more accessible.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Writing from German kind of bureaucratic documentation, which is also in the book, Doesn't provide that kind of entry point into the imaginings that these and experiences and emotions that these individuals had. So it really the material was kind of driving it in that direction. Um, and then also as a kind of evolving (laughs) scholar historian, I thought, you know, at this point in my, in my career, it it might be interesting to take some more chances and experiment Mm -hmm. a little bit more with, with the writing and the construction of the book. Um, and that was, you know, also uh, part of the, the the reasoning behind you know the structure and the and the style of the book, and lastly, <clears throat> I was able to find a publisher, um, mm-hmm. you know, more of a, a crossover trade publisher uh, to to support me in the effort and an editor, and and that of course uh, resulted in a more accessible, readable
0: book. So let's let's start talking about the book, and I'd like to invite you to start by talking a little bit about the context, one of the things that was really striking to me as I read it was, was the way you, you uh, pointed out that the women you examine are, 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 baby boomers, right? That they're part of a generational cohort that's born either very late or mostly in the immediate aftermath of world war one. What kind of Germany did they grow up in?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, it, again, you collect the material, you're kind of looking at it, and it's often everything is there in plain sight, but it doesn't, you don't see it. And I, I distinctly remember kind of going through my material, and I had been listing all these women and just putting them into kind of a database on my computer, hmm. and always putting in their birth date and their addresses if I could find them, and kind of plotting them. And it just, and then as I looked, I said, Wow, I mean they're all born about the same time you know nineteen 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 twenty and i and I thought this is really a a generational story this this mm-hmm. um, collection of of subjects that I'm finding in the east, and so what does that mean? They're born after right after the first world war um, great war, and then you you know of course you'd find from the standard history text that there was a spike in demographically and in, in birth rate didn't go up did go up right after the war. It makes sense. Um, and they're part of that boom. Um, and that means that they're coming of age in the thirties. Um, it also means that there's a children, the first generation of women voting. So the, you know, suffragists Hmm. had won their, their cause and gotten the vote in Germany, much like in America and the Soviet Union. And now, um, but these are the women, these young women are the first ones who are experiencing, um, kind of politicization you know, post suffragette movement, so a new kind of generation of female activists. And the, and the kind of sad irony is that the tragedy is that that experience for them of coming into the political system coincided with the development of this criminal regime. And so they, they, you know, understood and experienced, um, politics, you know, within this Nazi context. Hmm. Um, those who were, you know, uh, women who had come from backgrounds that were more communist or social democrat, liberal, Jewish, of course, they had been pushed out, um, in the early thirties, like up to some seven to 8,000 women, Jewish, German women among them were politically, you know, persecuted on political grounds right away, um, after the Nazi seized power mm-hmm. in 1933. So, um, <clears throat> and just an interesting story of, the uh, coincidence of kind of this first generation of politicized German women and this and this regime.
0: So, so they're growing up and, and, and right, they're... and they're in the
1: Hitler Youth. Um, that's yeah, at like the ten, they're going through all these well, domestic science courses. They're, they you know, being fully educated, indoctrinated, but also excited. You know, there. This is a moment. um, for those who fit the racial profile, you know, these um, these were moments also of advancement and opportunity and a lot of social mobility. So the women in the book, most of them didn't have more than a kind of grammar school education, came from small towns, villages, r- often mostly rural settings. And they, you know, saw their future in the party and um, various party organizations and, and in the government in this the the system that supported the genocide and the warfare, um, this modern state system was expanding in order to sustain that. And then, you know, Mm -hmm. so there, there were job opportunities that didn't exist before. So um, it's it's also a, uh, a story of um, social and political, you know, political activism and kind of a, a a social uh, involvement in, in, in the government and in the, um, campaigns of the government in a way that was really unprecedented.
0: So what kind of, so half a million or so, perhaps more, maybe many more, what what kind of reasons did they give for deciding to go East?
1: Um, well, some of that I've touched on, uh, and, mm-hmm. and just to backtrack a little bit, I should just point out the basic facts um, for your listeners, because you know, we're often, <clears throat> I mean, I would argue that we've been kind of um, duped <laughs> by Nazi propaganda in terms of our understanding of, of what regu- you know, ordinary German women experienced in the 30s. By 1935, most German women, you know, were not pregnant, were not uh, married, and were not, mm-hmm. you know, staying home. Um, so, um the women who went east did so for a variety of reasons. They had, first of all, they had to fulfill their labor duty. Everyone had to work,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, but they could choose where they were going to work. Uh, so, for instance, one of the characters, was, uh, one of the subjects, Liselotte Meyer, from a uh, town near Leipzig, you know, she could have worked in an automobile factory. She was, she had some accounting background training, um, but uh, this opening uh, came up after 1941, of course, in Lida, in Belarus. And the pay was higher, and hmm. um, and her girlfriend actually also um, <clears throat> wanted to join her. So the two of them went. So they were, you know, uh, there was that kind of peer re- relationship that they thought, okay, you know, maybe it's a little bit daunting to go solo, but she went with her girlfriend. Um, often somebody's secretaries who went to the local labor offices in Germany and Kassel and different cities. Um, You know, they'd come out of training programs together, and they would go in kind of um, a little pool, like little groups. Mm -hmm. Um, And others uh, were incredibly patriotic. Annette Schuching-Holmeyer, who was the nurse, who was fairly, you know, was well-educated, she believed, you know, it was her duty to... Serve if, if the young men were going to go off to war, whether they wanted to or not, then women should be by their side, should also um, support them. Um, the wives of the SS men clearly made decisions in marrying the SS men that they wanted to align themselves with this elite organization. <clears throat> so that's pretty telling. And um, it was expected that they would make certain sacrifices and, and join their husbands hmm. in the East. Um, they were in a rush to procreate because of that organization, <laughs> so they would join them. Um, so there were various, you know, reasons: patriotic, career, um, curiosity, ambition. Uh, you know, often um, the showgirl I'm thinking about too. I mean, she uh, was an adventurer. I mean, she just saw this mm-hmm. as something, you know, see the world. And, and in, in memoirs, in the interviews I conducted with them, I think it's interesting that many of them use the phrase, which is a cliche today, you know, I wanted to make something of myself. I wanted to become somebody, hmm. which, you know, we say all the time now, but this was pretty, for a young woman to have that outlook and to think in those terms um, was was pretty, extra, you know, pretty much of a mark of a revolution that was occurring um, of, of more independent-minded women.
0: And not at all what, what, as you say, not at all what you would expect young women to be saying, given the kind of Nazi images or the the, the, the uh, generic line that Nazi propaganda put out about what women should do.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that these are not necessarily incompatible. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> that to say that you're part of a mass movement doesn't mean that you're completely erasing, you know, completely suppressing your individuality that you can, you know, this is, this is the language of today, but you can kind of self actualize through a mass movement.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So they found themselves within the movement and it was empowering. Um And again, um I mean, not only social mobility, but also the sense of racial superiority. Um There, there was, by aligning themselves to it, there was, Um, you know, these these opportunities, Uh, I think also that um, the movement, you know, as a revolution, um, and again here, this is where the propaganda tends to lead us astray, Um, there was so much upheaval and flux, you know, all revolutions are inherently, you know, there's instability and uncertainty. And, ex- and extremes are allowed to kind of coexist in revolutionary moments and times. So, you know, some of these women, I see also kind of confusion there as well in terms of mm-hmm. what the expectation is of them as Hausfrauen, but that this is exciting and that they have to be strong and brave and sacrifice and be, you know, they're being trained and kind of in martial. The rhetoric is, is um, you know, the militaristic training that's even in the Hitler Youth Program <clears throat> They are, um, I mean, there's this, there's a little bit in the book from Claudia Kunz's work, marvelous yeah. work. I haven't mentioned my, my colleagues and, and, and mentors and people who have written before me who are really Gudrun Schwartz and Elizabeth Harvey and, um, Claudia Kunz and Gisela Bach. And I mean, there's wonderful literature out there that I really, um, relied on heavily in addition to doing original research. And there's a, episode in her book that I cite um, in terms of education in the 1930s, which I found really striking. So she had a documented case in which Claudia Kunz, in which Mm -hmm. the teachers brought the students to an insane asylum to a uh, home for the mentally, uh, physically disabled, and like a tour, like an Ausflug, an excursion, Mm -hmm. and brought the students there and they were taught, instructed to stare at the less fortunate and not to feel any any empathy. Hmm. And so it was a kind of undoing of the of the bourgeois gaze, a charitable gaze, you know. Um, and and this this is very um, you know much uh, part of how there's this this incredible change going on that's very insidious and very, you know, deep here um, mm-hmm. in, in, in how women are being socialized that helps us explain why when they do ultimately go East, um, they respond the way they do and they witness the way they do kind of coldly. And even in the testimony up to this day that I read from some of my subjects, court testimony remained incredibly callous. Mm. Um, that some of that really was, I think, ingrained in their in their upbringing and education in the thirties.
0: I'm reminded of uh, Chris Browning's book, Ordinary Men, where he kind of looks at the educational experiences and the exposure of the the subjects. In, in his book, he, he deals with a uh, battalion, I think, right, of, of of people who participate in the killing in the East, and and concludes that, in fact their experience with education and propaganda was not likely to shape them in kind of life-changing ways, but his subjects are considerably older than yours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Um, right. That's a different, you know, that's that was part of this, this debate based on his book, Ordinary Men, which was mm-hmm. set off then by the book that followed by Dan and Goldhagen. And I think that the, 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 the scholarship now is kind of found a middle ground in terms of, the importance of ideology as well as the element of kind of peer pressure. And I, I don't think you can talk about the atrocities and the level of savagery and kind of violence um, that was perpetrated against Jewish men, women, and children. Um, I, don't, I don't think we can fully explain that by leaving out kind of anti-Semitic ideology or mm-hmm. these kinds of <clears throat> exercises I just described to you in which people are kind of trained and taught to to not feel the empathy and the um, concern for the other.
0: So one of the other uh, debates or or discussions that you engage in this book is this issue of the East as as colonial, or or perhaps if Germany is an imperial power. Um, So I'd like to personalize this by asking, what are the women that that you discuss in the book, what do they think the East... And, and the people who live in the East are going to be like when they get there.
1: Um, I don't, I'm sorry, I don't follow your question. So can you repeat it?
0: Sure. Um, so, so you, uh, interview women mm-hmm. and, and read uh, the memoirs written by women, um, who, who, uh, get on a train, right? Make a decision to request a, a, to east, a job yes. site in the <laughs> East or mm-hmm, wherever. Mm-hmm. W- what do they think the East is going to be?
1: Oh, they have different, it really varied. I mean, the one woman who was more educated and had connections with journalists and was better read, she had a law degree. Um, she was told before, I asked her specifically, you know, what were you thinking when you decided to go East? Did mm-hmm. you, um, had you been briefed at all about um, anti semitic policies or, the PO, what the, what the, was happening to the Soviet POWs. And she said, Oh, I didn't, I didn't need to be told anything before I went. There was plenty of, of anti Semitism and mm-hmm. racism, um, around. Um, so she, um, and even her friend, the journalist, told her, Anetta, you know, why are you going there? Haven't you heard they're shooting Jews there? Mm-hmm. Um, but even Anetta was still, um, completely, Shocked and wrote home within within a few weeks of of arriving in Ukraine, um, to her um, mother, um, writing something like, "Oh, Papa, what 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 Papa says is true, or what Mama says is true. It's a quote in a book, you know. This isn't this. The world is an enormous slaughterhouse, and 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 I can." I know who the killers are and they, they really do smell like blood. I, the quote is in the book. I am not mm-hmm. uh, relating it precisely, but the complete shock, dismay, the other character who falls into a state of depression, um, uh, Ilze Struva, uh, one of the nurses who, who runs back to her room after the first day. Now she's treating actually German soldiers. So her, for her, it's the shock of the war, not the genocide as such. Um, she crawls into her bed and curls up like a in a fetal position, and 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 doesn't want hmm. to go back to work. Um, <clears throat> so for these women, even if they had been exposed to this, or had witnessed something in the 30s, even Kristallnacht, had had seen some of the violence in the streets of of the Reich, um, or had been told or warned, I I don't they just this was something I I think. And it's understandable um you can be told these things, but to actually physically be present and to see and smell and hear um, is quite a different uh, experience um, and they had they had a variety they reacted in a variety of ways um, I mentioned the women who retreated who kind of pulled back mm-hmm. and 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 they delved into their work and they just tried to shut it out um, and then there were others who um Worked even even harder towards making these um, criminal policies, you know, realizing them as secretaries and as as clerks, being incredibly efficient. Not in any way trying to sabotage, but to actually advance the policies, and then to personally benefit from them by engaging in in theft, plundering from the victims, even wearing the clothes of the victims and the jewelry of the victims, mm-hmm. eating the. the the food that had been confiscated from the victims who had been deported to places like Minsk. Um, And then at the other end of uh, the extreme would be the actual killers, those who, and just without orders, official orders, um, you know, pick up a pistol and engage in, in participate in, in in the killing.
0: One of the things that I, that your book brought home to me in ways that I hadn't quite internalized before with the way in which these people were were embedded in their local context, um, where they interacted with the local population, where Uh, walking down the street. They are not walking in some kind of German district, but they are living in the town. Uh, And and one of the things you point to is, I think I've got the phrase right, ghetto tourism. Is that the phrase you used?
1: Yeah, and that's something that has been in the literature. Uh, That's not something Mm -hmm. that I came up with. Um, Some earlier work on photography, the Alex Racino, and I think it comes up in some of the work of um, Andrea Lov, who worked on the ghettos in Poland, um, on the Łódź ghetto, the Krakow ghetto. That there were these, and it's also been documented in the Warsaw Ghetto. There's a film actually um, hmm. that documents that. Um, <clears throat> so um, we we have uncovered this pattern whereby German officials, um, including you know, would go in and, and often bring their wives and girlfriends um, on kind of dates um, to see. You know, like today we would say in in a colloquially, you know, like slumming it. Um, mm-hmm. Go in and, and, and see how the other half lives. Also in a kind of attitude of, of, um, of affirmation, a kind of triumphalism. Um, and then also to, to exploit the situation because Jews in the ghettos in, in Warsaw and in uh, Krakow, for instance, you now they were desperate to sell or to, you know, whatever belongings they had to to survive. And so, um, you know, there would be shopping trips. I mean, uh, women would go in and um, make off with all kinds of uh, items, and, and, you know, for nothing. Um, hmm. So, you know, these ghettos also became sites of kind of curiosity, but also um, of uh, other uh, experiences of the victims of degradation, and humiliation, because of the, the Germans who would kind of pass through um, and clearly take on that attitude and then actually kind of interact with them in a way that was, um, further, you know, hum- humiliating or, or even and it could be dangerous. I mean, many documented, ca- documented cases of, um, German officials, wives, youth, even children going with them, um, and, and getting involved in the violence directly in the ghetto. Hmm. Um, uh, one official in a documented case in Gudrun Schwartz's book, um, the, the, the father brought the son in to the ghetto and they were um, carrying out a kind of target uh, shooting practice against Jews. Um, <clears throat> so these ghettos also became sites, um, you know, where women you know, crossed into uh, these, these areas and got, got involved. And I think the key, the key point there is just this proximity that existed and, um, and was for some just too too tempting and too you know, could start off as a form of curiosity, but then it could lead to these acts of, of violence. One of the secretaries in, uh featured in the book in Vladimir Volinsk, she there's the very prominent case that came out in the courtroom actually after the war where she went into the ghetto and um <clears throat> with her boss, the Ghibit Kamasar the regional governor, and um, you know, just on the spot, a, a Jewish child approached her, um, and she, you know, picked up the child by the legs and and killed it against the ghetto wall. Mm-hmm. So these are the you know stories and the the scenes, and that all kind of add up to this world. Of the genocide of the Holocaust, and I'm just trying to I'm trying to fill that out in my book in a way that provides that day to day dimension where women and children, you know, are incorporating, you know, crossing into it in their daily lives on picnics, um, walking home from school, the the boy who comes home, you know, walking home and sees a Jewish victim on the street and then tells his mother at lunchtime, and you know, so just how this becomes part of an everyday encounter and and how do people respond to that and how do they how does it somehow become kind of normalized or you know what what, where does that (laughs) um, how do you compare that with for instance the scenes that we know in Auschwitz-Birkenau and in the camp Mm -hmm. system
0: Mm -hmm. so how did how did German men respond to the presence of women in these sites and in and, 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 and behaving in those ways?
1: That's a great question, um, because the story is uh, the dynamic is so key to all of this. Um, one of the problems is that we've looked at these and uh, this history in a you know in a kind of silos. Mm -hmm. of ethnicity and of gender. You know, so this is what the men were doing, this is what the women were doing, this is what the Ukrainians were doing, this is what the Poles were doing. Instead of trying to understand the interaction of all these groups across all these kinds of, what we think of in retrospect are, um, um, uh, you know, differences. Like we would assume that, you know, men and women wouldn't work together on something like this, that men's work is to wage war, and, and this was the SS and so forth. But in fact, of course, they are interacting and more than providing, as Claudia Kunz pointed out on her study, Mothers in the Fatherland, more than this kind of moral support at home. But actually, they are um, organizing things together and planning things together and persecuting Jews together um, and that their relationships inside the offices, outside the offices are part of this dynamic um, and part of this history Uh that is really important. And from the victim's standpoint, you know, this was bewildering. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It was, as they call, the world turned upside down. Mm-hmm. So there's the case of very famous case of Felix Landau and his, who would become his wife, um, Gertrude Siegel. Mm-hmm. Um, you may remember this from the book. And he, you know, they're they're at their wedding party in Treblinka and dancing on the table and having this celebration. Of course, there's a lot of alcohol and <clears throat> um, he had given her a, a golden necklace that had been confiscated from a shooting site from a Jewish woman as a gift, you know, to flatter her. And so you have a lot of this courtship that's part of, you know, exploiting the Jews as part of the courtship history. Um, the building of special hmm. facilities, of villas, of, of nice balconies, of trying to impress your mate by exploiting... <laughs> You know, these Jewish laborers are, are, are a man showing off his, his manliness and his bravado by, um, you know, humiliating a Jewish laborer. Um, <clears throat> so that the men, when they witness the female violence, however, I mean, they could be kind of partners in crime at that level that I just described. Mm-hmm. But in the cases of, of females, women who participated in the killing, then and got very close to the mass shootings, for instance, like in the case of your Volkhov. Then things get a little bit complicated. Then we don't really have as many patterns as we have a lot of kind of, as I mentioned before, in this kind of revolutionary situation. That there's confusion. You know, are they supposed to be? You know, if 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 the if the um, husband is is carrying out this killing action to protect the German people and protect the Reich and protect his family if he's doing it under with that idea in mind, then should she actually be there, you know, that close to the bloodshed? Um, and should she actually also be that violent, becoming that violent person as well? Isn't that counter to, um, the, the idea of the, of the female as nurturing and soft and peaceful. And, um, so there was, um, some, both during the war and after the war, quite a bit of um, kind of cognitive dissonance or kind of confusion Mm -hmm. about these changing roles and shifting roles. Some of the women refer to that one female perpetrator in the book I just mentioned, um, Johanna Altfader, the one in the ghetto. She wore she she kind of self-fashioned herself as a cowgirl and wore pants and rode around in a hmm. on a on a horse and so forth. And the other women they 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 you know said that they found her. They called her like a butch. They thought she was um, a she man. That they they were they hmm. found her presence um, confusing and even uh, repugnant. So
0: so in in the book you've got a, a long and very interesting section about the the women who actually physically participated in the killing and, and, and we don't have much more time to talk about that. I would just encourage the listeners to to go read the book. It's wonderful. I, I want to ask you about a a different set of women. Women who I don't know if the right role is passive or just different, but people who maybe facilitated the killing, people who were administrators or secretaries and who <laughs> who copied and compiled and Forwarded the orders and the lists that made that 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 allowed the Holocaust or, or furthered the Holocaust. Can you talk a little bit about those women?
1: Yeah, I would I would very much appreciate your question. And I'm sorry, I'm coughing. I'm I'm just coming uh, recovering from the flu. Um, mm. So this was something I was really surprised uh, to to really kind of piece together and, and realize, um, and it just. Kind of registered when I was uh, writing the book. I had been so influenced um, in all the in all the best possible ways by Ron Hilberg's magisterial work on the machinery of destruction, on the whole administrative apparatus of uh, behind the Holocaust. And um, I realized in piecing together these kind of secretaries, these case secretaries, <clears throat> just how important women were in the machinery and that they were in the machinery in significant ways. And that all of these kind of clerical duties, um, that we think of almost like when we think of Iceman as, as banal or even apolitical, that women were also, you know, there was a female, what we call a death murderer. I mean, they were, um, Mm -hmm. organizing these, um, deportation actions, um, discussing them with their bosses, typing up the orders, distributing the orders, preparing the lists, um issuing these labor cards. They had the authority depending on the relationship with their boss and many of them had very good relationships with the boss. In fact, they had many of them were having affairs with their bosses. Hmm. Um had security top security clearance, had the could stamp on behalf of the boss. Um you know, so there's Quite a bit more there in terms of what power women, many women, actually acquired um, over the course of the war, and increasingly so, than was admitted to after the war. And of course, we didn't really, because they were accessories, and the statute of limitations kind of ran out on pursuing these these secretaries after 1968 in West Germany, for instance. I mean, the, the men were the primary perpetrators, and they were the and they were the ones, the big fish, as it were. So. It's understandable the way things turned out, but many of these women did get away with not only murder, but also this this in this larger um, capacity, you know, as accessories, as what we would call death murderers. So putting things in motion administratively so that, you know, the killing could actually be carried out by their male colleagues.
0: You, you mentioned the after the war experience, and I know, I know your time is somewhat short. How, how did these women remember, and you hinted at this a little bit earlier, how how do they, the women you study, how did they remember and account for their behavior after the war? And how does that compare to how Germans in general remember the female experience in the war?
1: Well, it's it's kind of mixed up in what are general trends in mm-hmm. um, women's history and kind of women's self-identification as apolitical um, and that their work is apolitical and how that's internalized with also the very specific mythology and kind of um, um, memory within Germany. So for instance if you it you know, a very common kind of perception would be that a German woman was not in the East, okay, so that you're not placing them in these crime scenes as you know, so that kind of already removes them from that discussion as it were. But in fact, um we're victims of the regime and we're martyrs. Um, were the rubble women the one who had to? They were the ones who got stuck, you know, cleaning up the mess. And that the, the failure, the collapse of the regime, the zero hour. Elizabeth Heineman writes about this really well in mm-hmm. a very important article in the American Historical Review. You know that that, that and, and you see this in, in in some of the in some of the popular literature, the the rubble um, literature, and the, um, uh, some of the early uh, films. Um, these portraits of women who are indeed the victims of the mass rapes of the Red Army, but are also portrayed as kind of, um, they had upheld kind of the moral, they were the moral fiber that was left of Germany. And kind of the the recovery of Germany was really, um, you know, there the, was the kind of ha- not a halo effect, but that the women were really unscathed by that. And they were going to, you know, come out of this whole thing clean. Um, and, and, and who would who would want to dispute that? um you know on one level given the tragedy the catastrophe the depths of, of what had happened and the horror of it you know what's left to hang on to and, and where are the mm-hmm. sources in which you restore society restore civilization and so women were really kind of part of that process of restoration and many who once even the allies you know the, the Americans who occupied Germany they weren't going to really challenge that either um in fact, you know, there was amnesty fever and a pardoning of a lot of the male criminals. So um, no one was really, really determined to kind of dig that much deeper and, and challenge challenge the women. And um, I think that the moment when the next generation came out in the 60s and started to question, you know, where were you during the Nazi era, um, young German men, you know, uh, in the 60s, I think they were mostly posing those questions to their fa- grandfathers. You know, they yeah. weren't really pressing Oma. About that. So some of this is starting to come out now, um, a twilight of their lives, and with the growth of memoir literature that I've been using. Um, but um, so again, the, the timing of all of this is very interesting, uh, with the material from the collapse of Soviet Union, the fact that the women are older now and a little bit more outspoken and less fearful.
0: Um. I'd like to step back just for a couple brief concluding questions. And, and, and the first one is you, your book looks particularly at the East. Do you have any sense of the experience of women who spent the world war elsewhere, France or in Amsterdam or Denmark or somewhere? Did they? Do you have any sense of what their experience is like? Did they fit into the same kind of categories you mentioned in the book?
1: Well, so in some cases, there's overlap because some of these women mm. had positions, if they were the Wehrmacht in particular, um, with, with the agencies, SS and police, or some of the occup- official government agencies, even in the private sector, actually, wherever that organization existed, they did, they did move around. So one of the secretaries mm. featured in the book was first in Paris, then in former Yugoslavia and Serbia, um, and then in Ukraine. Um, and then and then went to Italy. I mean, she was so she had these different experiences. Um, <clears throat> but I can't really I didn't do. It's an interesting question. I was so focused on the East, I didn't really get into a comparative um, analysis. But I, I think it would be really interesting, you know, to go back and do that. We've we've done all this these kind of occupation studies and left the women out of that story, and now we kind of got to go back in and 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 search and and determine you know, to what extent they were present in those different occupation regimes and what they were doing.
0: And a similar kind of thing, and I, I don't know whether this this happened with you or not, but I'm, I'm reminded of the, the literature about women's conduct in, in Rwanda, uh-huh. um, <coughs> both as victims, but also as perpetrators. And I wonder whether you have a sense of whether the kinds of questions you explored are addressed in the broader kind of Literature about genocide studies in general.
1: Well, it's certainly informing my my work. Although I didn't get into mm-hmm. it, I couldn't delve into it in this study the way I structured it. Um, but I, I think it's very important, and I you know I'm foot I've some footnotes on it.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, so clearly, Pauline from Rwanda is a prominent case um, of a female perpetrator, um, and um, I also thought it was very interesting. I'm sorry, is there is, there, is, is our connection in any way interesting? No, nope, okay. we're still good. Okay, good. Um, and I was also um, fascinated by a couple of things that came up while I was writing the book. First, of course, we had the case of Lindsay England in Abu Ghraib. Um, and her participation in the torture of torturing of victims there, and the way she discussed it and the way that story came out and the way she was handled in the courts and so forth, I thought was there were parallels there. Um, and um, my colleagues in American history um, brought to my attention some very interesting work on women in the US who were in the KKK. Um, Hmm. and there were a lot of parallels as well. And it was kind of chilling because one particular unit in Pomona, California, which is a neighboring town from where I live, I live in Claremont, um, where I teach, um, you know, was very active. And, and then a colleague of mine was, was showing me some of the, um, studies on women attending the lynchings in the South and the spectacle of Mm -hmm. violence. And, And it reminded me of some of this kind of, as I mentioned before, how the violence, um, you know, crosses over into kind of these recreational activities and how can these two things coexist and what what happens there. Um, so there are quite a few, um, I think, connections that can be made, and not only genocide studies, but just, you know, in other developments in women's history and women's um, involvement in extreme, you know, terrorist organizations, racist organizations, you know, so um, I you know, I think that there are many things that could be that can be pulled out of my book that 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 people in other fields could say, "Aha, yes, I've seen this before." Um, in this region, in this culture, mm-hmm. in this time period, the the participation of women in the uh, genocide of the Native Americans is also now coming out in terms of the frontier woman and her involvement. And, and so, yeah, I think there's a lot more work to be done, and I and comparative work would be really uh, that much much more fascinating. You know, be really revealing. <laughs>
0: So I'm reading the book and one of the, the the I don't know whether this was uh you were able to do this because it was a somewhat more popular press uh or, or or how this worked out, but but you have a series of images, right? Photographic portraits of the women you discuss. And I looked at these and I found them quite moving. <laughs> uh and and maybe disturbing because of course these are pictures images of people not not in the office or not in in the east but these are these are photographs of young women who look the same as our college students now or young women who are working. I wonder what it was like for you to select the pictures for the book.
1: Well, that's, I I was really determined to do uh, photo research because as I mentioned before, it's hard to. Write women's history because um, it, it's harder to come across the source material. It's in it's it's in, in a variety of places and forms um, for this time period, and you know, kind of when they're not um, in these official roles, um, but influential nonetheless. So how do you how do you mm-hmm. trace that? And so we know, you know, there's a rich cache of, I can't even know, can't even come up with a number of photos from the time period from the Holocaust, Holocaust-related mm-hmm. photos, archives. And, um, you know, it struck me that women are in a lot of these photos and they're usually not identified, or if there's a caption it says, unknown German woman, you know, photos that we, we use all the time. Um, and so um, I realized that this was yet another way to kind of place them. It was a start to get them kind of at the scene and in and, and reconstructing these communities of violence, because a lot of these photos are private photos um, from personal photo albums um, that have been kept after the war and confiscated by investigators or turned into archives. And um, so, I, yeah, I, I had to really dig around, and um, I was lucky in a couple of cases to actually find photographs of my subjects. I think the photos you're referring to are ones that I came upon fairly late in the Mm-hmm. in the book um those photos were from uh lisa Lo, a photo album from Lida. I think those are the ones you're referring to, and those mm-hmm. are really chilling because <clears throat> and it kind of leads me to our last your last question i think which will have to do with my next project uh so this is a good segue um mm-hmm those are photographs of deportations of Jews being marched through Lita. You can see a woman standing there because as I mentioned, the women, the secretaries, you know, actually had quite a bit of power. They could even select, I mean, they could stand there while these Jews were being marched in the column to their, to where they were going to be killed and actually pull anyone out of the lineup for whatever reason. There was a secretary in Slonim who said, well, this woman, this Jewish woman did not finish knitting a sweater for me and pulled her out of the line. Um, and then there's a photo of a Jewish man who's being coaxed out of a hiding place while a, um, official and his, and this German female woman, I don't know if it's his wife or, um, someone, you know, um, in the community there, you know, and he's at gunpoint being, being hauled out of this hiding place and he will, and then he's going to be killed because we have a testimony for that, uh, that he was actually killed. Hmm. And and there's, you know, who's taking these photos? Why are these photos being taken? Mm -hmm. What is that act of taking that photograph in that form? It was clearly forbidden. The SSN police and other organizations sent numerous orders down repeatedly, do not photograph, do not photograph, do not photograph. And yet everybody was encouraged to go to the East with a snapshot camera and to document history and document their place in history. So there's these, you know, these are two two things that are at odds with one another. Um, and we have this evidence, and it's kept after the war. It's not destroyed. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a keepsake. It's got some sentimental value. Um, so I my next project actually has to do with, it starts with a photograph and some of these questions of photography. And there's quite a bit of literature on photography and photography in the Holocaust. But I'm hoping to um, bring the discussion into a more of a um integrated approach of all the different sources that we use to reconstruct the history of genocide and the different forms that comes in mm. from forensic evidence, you know, m- you know, going out into the landscape and finding, you know, how the terrain has been um uh you know changed by the mass shooting sites and um and the kinds of um work that's done at mass grave sites for instance the photography, the documentation, the film, all these things across disciplines that we have available to us. How do we get them? Why are we using them? How are they changing how we write history? How's genocide studies hmm. actually pushing us methodologically in new areas um, mm-hmm. that I think are really exciting? So the most, I went, I'm going back. I just finished reading um, <clears throat> <laughs> of all things, Susan Zontalk's book on photography. Uh-huh. I thought, okay, everybody's talking about this book. I need to read it. Um, and I've been kind of assuming that I know what it's about when I just need to sit down and, and, and go through it. <laughs> and, and it's a wonderful book. It's not a long book, actually. Um, which isn't the point, but it's like, it's very compact. Um, very thoughtful study. And she makes some very interesting points um, about the camera as a very aggressive weapon.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And she has quite a few k- examples in there uh, about, you know, on the Holocaust and on atrocities and atrocity photography and, you know, why are we taking these pictures and um, what does this mean, you know, for us kind of culturally and morally um, and ethically. So uh, I I'm... Going back to that, um, those very, those issues, and that's really going to be kind of a, the topic of, of my next book. And um, that's why I'm going to Ukraine in a couple of days to actually go to a site um, <clears throat> where a series of photographs were taken that are pretty um, uh, important photographs that are not well known.
0: Well, that sounds like a wonderful project. And I hope when you get it done that maybe you'll consider coming back on the show. But for now we've taken a lot of your time. I want to say thank you so much. Uh, I had a great time talking to you and I know that uh, people will find it interesting. So thank you so much.
1: All right. I appreciate it, Kelly. I uh, thank you very much for inviting me to do this. And I um, am so excited about the interest in the book and I appreciate the interest in the book and um, and am uh, glad that you have a very strong uh, base of, of listeners out there and, and people will go to your website so thank you very much
0: Well I will just close by saying that I suspect you're going off, we are taping this on the day, probably as the game begins of the German-US World Cup game and I'm not going to ask you who you're rooting for but I hope that whichever side you're rooting for does well <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and enjoy, All right. thank you so much
1: Thank you, bye bye Kelly
0: You've been listening to an interview with Wendy Lauer author of the book, Hitler's Furies, German Women in the Nazi Killing Fields. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll come back next time for an interview with Michael Bryant, author of the book, Eyewitness to Genocide, the Operation Reinhard Death Camp Trials, 1955 to 1966. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.